0: Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of KeyBank Capital Markets. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health, and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, Delivering Kinder, Smarter, Affordable Care for All. I co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of the dynamic healthcare industry, This month, we're doing something a little bit different. Usually, we examine sectors from the perspective of CEOs and founders who are leading innovative businesses, driving transformation throughout the healthcare industry. This month, we've decided to talk to some of the people behind those leaders, namely the funders from private equity and venture capital firms. Our article is titled... Fishing for Returns in Turbulent Waters, Healthcare Investors Adapt to New Competitors and Greater Risk. And my co-authors this month are Stacy Gafonte and Mike Elizondo, both directors at Kane Brothers focused on M&A and capital raising. Welcome to House Calls, Stacy and Mike, where the bankers like you are always in.
1: Hi, Dave. Great to be here with you.
2: Dave, hey, nice to be with you again.
0: Yeah, we're going to have some fun today. So, our article focused on this topic because these are such interesting times in healthcare's capital markets, particularly the investment side of it. And we wanted to investigate a thesis that we collectively developed about how private equity and venture capital investors are responding strategically to the dynamics at play in the current market. So first, to kick it off, let's talk about the role that PE and VC play in driving changes in healthcare businesses and within the sector overall.
2: Dave, it's, you know, as we reflect back an incredible transaction environment that we've had, you know, since really since the national response to the pandemic started a little over two years ago, which is incredible to say at this point. You know, something that Stacey and I have spent a lot of time talking about over the last two years has been sort of what's changed. You know, a common observation that many in the market and the sector make has been with the telehealth industry. Through necessity, particularly in the early days of the pandemic, providers and um, importantly consumers needed to find ways to provide care and access care respectively. And this caused an acceleration of adoption of telehealth both on the supply and on the demand side. You know, I think the takeaway to take from that is that, you know, the pandemic in many ways caused people to change, but allowed people to change. And I don't think it's too dissimilar in other areas of healthcare, in particular in areas that Stacy and I spend a lot of time in, in payers and value-based care. So as we talked to our interviewees, I'd say there was a general consensus of the need for long-term change. In particular, the idea of value-based care having been around for a long time. But I think there's now really broad-based support from all stakeholders, a payer, a provider, and the consumer to achieve that goal. Interestingly enough, one of our interviewees discussed in some ways the concentration of investment capital moving towards disruptive models, not only from the venture community, but also from corporates really investing in ways to disrupt their own businesses to stay relevant in many ways. I sure hope you're right, Mike.
0: And I also hope we didn't have a selection bias in who we decided to interview, you know, leaning hard on the value theme because that did come through loud and clear. And I also really like this distinction that COVID not only caused or triggered the need for innovation, that it allowed people that have had innovative products sort of on the sidelines for a long time to actually demonstrate their effectiveness. So remarkably fruitful time in that sense, you know, silver lining to the COVID tragedy generally. Stacy, anything to add to what Mike observed?
1: So I agree with, with all of what Mike said. And Dave, I completely agree with you in terms of thinking about some of the silver linings that have come from covid I do believe that the pandemic is going to have a longer term impact for the healthcare industry and a lot of the innovation that we're seeing right now in healthcare that investors both PE investors and VCs are chasing is really reflective of this whether it's in value based care, mental and behavioral health or moving care to the home these are all themes that investors are very much focused on right now.
0: Digging a little deeper into the current market dynamics as they've evolved over the last couple of years. Mike, why don't you talk about how these shifting dynamics are shaping
2: opportunities for investors? Yeah, Dave, I'm going to focus, you know, on sort of the health tech area because that was really kind of the focus of our interviewees of this article mentioned at the top, you know, the velocity of investing has been outstanding. And in 2020 and 2021, you know, venture capital fundraising increased from 2019 to 2020, 50% increase. And 2021 saw a double on top of 2020's levels. So we're talking about, you know, incredible and, and in many cases, unprecedented amounts of capital coming into the picture in the in these specific segments. Mm-hmm from a health tech standpoint, you know, saw nearly 1200 deals, nearly 40 billion in aggregate dollars invested. And importantly, noting that there were a significant portion of that $40 billion invested were in transactions where there was over hundred million dollars put to work in that investment. So we've seen sort of sizes increase of these rounds to really support the tremendous growth that investors see There's a couple of private transactions that I would highlight. Devoted Health is a tech-enabled Medicare managed care company. In September, they raised 1.15 billion with a B dollars in a Series D round, valuing the company at, at nearly 13 billion dollars. By the time the investment, the company served you know approximately 40,000 members, which is a good size MA plan. It's not a terribly large MA plan, as you, if you look and you compare it to the Uniteds and the Anthems and the Humanas of the world. A couple of weeks later, Village MD announced an investment by Walgreens, $5.2 billion. The valuation wasn't disclosed, but Walgreens upped their stake to 63% in that company. Why is this happening? We spent a lot of time discussing that with our interviewees, and there's a number of elements, but one externality that they all observed was really the entrance of more traditionally generalist or, or even technology funds moving into healthcare investing. There's always been funds that would invest in both technology and healthcare, but there was always a distinction between those groups. What I would say now is we've seen a little more direct intervention from sort of non-traditional healthcare investors into sort of the broader investing landscape, which certainly is, according to our interviewees, causing some of this sort of rapid deployment of capital, rising valuations, and record level of investment happening in the sector. Eye-popping numbers,
0: right? And, of course, there's a supply-demand impact here on investment. And are there too many dollars chasing too few deals? And is that having an impact on these valuations? So, Stacy, you know, given the activity, given our initial thesis, particularly as it focused on private equity investors and the fact that we thought they might need to move upstream to find opportunities with earlier-stage companies, Also, I think we discovered happening to some extent with with venture investors as well. Could you just talk about our thesis and the grounds for it, the evidence for it, and and how we're coming out?
1: Yeah, and that thesis, I would say, was really formed following a number of conversations we had more broadly with middle market PE firms really over the last year, where a lot of those conversations focused around the types of investments that they were looking to make, where historically, a lot of these middle market PE firms have been focused on positive EBITDA companies. And I would say over the last year, that conversation shifted where those investors said that they would be willing to get in earlier pre-profitability so long as they could really see a path to profitability over the course of their investment period. And you really saw this as you think about just valuation metrics right over the last year. You know, I would say the conversation moved from EBITDA multiples to looking at revenue multiples in ARR. So it, it's definitely been an interesting year, I would say, just given given everything going on in the market. The second observation that we had as we were developing our thesis is that the market is just moving faster. So the number of companies that start doing I'd say smaller capital raises, and then a year later, they're reaching unicorn status has been really incredible. So uh, our thesis was that not only are investors moving earlier, but that they're being forced to make quicker decisions, doing less due diligence as a result of that. And part of this I would also add is that with these earlier stage companies, P firms are generally not taking control positions. So it's, it's a bit of a different focus than as you think about some of their, you know, the historical control investments that they've made. Going back to our broader thesis, though, around PE investors moving upstream to find opportunities with earlier stage companies, one good example of this is Welsh Carson, Anderson, and Stowe. Last summer, Welsh Carson, which is a leading PE firm focused exclusively on healthcare and technology, announced that it was launching Valtruis, which is really a unique portfolio company that invests in partners with healthcare companies whose mission is to realign and transform healthcare through value-based care. And so they committed an initial $300 million to this platform back in August. And really since that announcement, they've invested in Cricket Health, which is a value-based kidney care company, WaySpring, which is a value-based care entity that's focused on substance use disorder as well as a couple of other investments in home-based primary care with uh, U.S. Medical Management and Oncology Care Partners. So really four investments over the last year or so. And we've seen other PE firms taking different approaches as well, whether it's you know creating funds that are specifically intended to invest in earlier stage opportunities that have smaller check sizes. Those are just some of the observations that we had going into this that helped develop our thesis.
0: Yeah, really, really interesting. You know, in, in many ways, I look at investors as a leading indicator of where the market's ultimately going to go. And when you start digging into companies like Welsh Carson and what they're doing and how they're sort of segmenting their investments, it it really does send some signals, some pretty powerful signals. But, you know, as always, it's it's important to test theory with with real world evidence. So Mike, why don't you talk to us about some of the firms and people that we interviewed to check out our thesis and refine
2: it as we engage with them. Yeah, absolutely. We're really fortunate, Dave, to you know, have really great relationships with these firms. We really consider to be sort of top tier and on the cutting edge folks that have a lot of understanding of the past of healthcare and how that'll, you know, really help to shape its future. You know, first we spoke with Jim Elrod of Vestar Capital Partners. Vestar, you know, was founded in 1988 and has invested over seven billion dollars in healthcare companies since its founding. Unique fund does both management buyouts as well as growth capital investments. And one of those recent investments was in a Colorado-based company called Friday Health Plans, which has been disrupting the ACA exchange insurance market. And in a lot of ways. We've talked a lot about the consumer here today on this podcast, really putting the ACA consumer first with a really novel, unique benefit design and and network design. We also spoke with Surgeon Vokovic of New Light Partners. In healthcare, you know, New Light really has been one of the firms that has been at the forefront of value-based care, and, and most notably being a really an early investor in you know, a value-based care leader really recognized across the market in Oak Street. It has invested over $6 billion in over 100 companies in its 15-year history. Thanks, Mike. And
0: Stacey, why don't you fill us in or round out our lineup card here with the other two investors that we had conversations with?
1: Yes. Thanks, Dave. So we spoke with Lauren Bruen of Heritage Group. Heritage has partnered with some of the most leading healthcare companies in the industry. Their model is unique because they are backed by both payers and providers. They have over $700 million of assets under management. And then the last investor we spoke with was Scott Rosen from Transformation Capital to the growth equity fund focused exclusively on healthcare IT and healthcare services
0: companies. And out of those conversations, we really saw three themes emerge, and we'll take those individually. So let's hit the first one, addressing increasing levels of uncertainty and competition in the markets. How did our investors view that, Mike? Shed some
2: light. Yeah, Dave, I would say one of our theses here was around valuation, and then you know there was really no challenge, candidly, to that valuation, which which hits on uncertainty and, and competition. Right? There should be a relationship between those, but there was a couple of general consensus items behind the reasons for that. One, certainly, interest rate environment, lots of capital seeking investments. You know, I don't think that's necessarily exclusive to healthcare. That's just the market broadly speaking. The addition, as we've talked about, of more generalist and technology investors, you know, all of our interviewees remarked in one way or another, just chasing investments has become more challenging as the valuation levels have increased. And particularly when one of our interviewees commented really at the earlier stages, that really leaves very little room for foot faults or air quote mistakes early on in investment. And those elements when you're getting into valuation levels that earlier and earlier stage companies are getting to and the amounts of capital they're raising, you really need a smooth glide path to that growth and bumps are felt a lot more early on than perhaps they had in the past. We did have a fair amount of discussion on generalist and, and uh, non-traditional healthcare investors spending time here. What was interesting is some of our interviewees discussed how these investors you know without understanding some of the history in healthcare the historical backdrop you know may ultimately be figuring out in a couple of years that they've bit off more than they could have anticipated you know in particular relating to the myriad of rules and regulations and the levels of rules and regulations for that matter that exists in healthcare but may not exist in the broader technology sector for example I'd say it was noted also one of our interviewees that technology investors have historically come into healthcare, but generally speaking, that's when technology has struggled as a broad sector. Although that's not the case in the current environment. Healthcare and and technology have been very successful. Where is this ultimately going is is really gonna be exciting to watch and predict. But frankly, I have a history in, in FinTech, Dave, and it seems pretty similar candidly, to the convergence of financial services and, and technology that happened sort of 15, 20 years ago. I think that's where we've been heading and probably continue to grow. You know, all that considered, I thought it was particularly interesting that despite the current environment, there was not a broad-based change in our interviewees' viewpoints of their theses in the sector. In fact, I would say there seemed to be a broad view that this period of time has actually emboldened their theses, that despite this market environment, it's really solidified their conviction. It may become more expensive, but they weren't deterred from deploying capital and they won't sit on the sideline during this current environment. I found that resolve to be pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, buckle up. I I think you're right. There's still a huge amount of sorting out that has to work its way through the marketplace. And in many respects, many of these individual sectors are still quite immature in the sense of just too many players, and we haven't really established who the winners are, and companies are having to take some bets, and you really did get the sense that it's more harrowing, and they're falling back on their expertise and their instincts, maybe to a greater extent than they were even two or three years ago, measured twice and cut once. And sort of out of that, Stacy, we saw, I think, our second theme emerge, which was the importance of alignment between investors and entrepreneurs and the company so talk a little bit about that the dance between investors and entrepreneurs and how they find one another and what types of marriages work and maybe more importantly which types don't work
1: yeah dave it was it was interesting to hear some of the commentary around the management teams in this environment And in working with earlier stage companies than these traditional middle market private equity firms are used to working with. I would say, though, the one broader point that really all of the investors agreed on is management and aligning management is very important, right, for a successful outcome with the investment. And generally, the way that you do this is through a meaningful equity rollover from management as part of the investment. And so this continues to be an important piece as you think about putting together term sheets for these types of investments. All that said, I I did think it was interesting to hear some of the commentary around trying to find the right management teams in this environment, and particularly the competitiveness that's been driving up the the valuations. So the first observation was around just accepting management as is in this frothy environment. One of the interviewees commented on how it's challenging in this environment to be able to make leadership changes as part of the investment. So You're really entering the investment knowing that you, meaning you as the investor, are going to help to need to fill capability gaps. And you know where the management team and the areas where the management team may be lacking and where you're, ne- you're going to need to bring in your own resources to help fill that gap. The second observation was around some of the valuations and the high valuations we're seeing, and that there's certainly management teams out there who want to maximize value today. But then there's the teams who are really focused on finding the right partner in an investor, a partner that that can really bring more than just capital, but that they can really bring a, whether it's a network of connections or healthcare expertise in the particular sector. And this really can push a company right to the next level. So when you're thinking about the investment horizon and when that investor exits, it's actually a better outcome over the longer term for the management team. And that, I would say, is really the differentiator for the more traditional healthcare investors who we spoke with, that they really understand the nuances of healthcare and can help an early stage company overcome challenges just using their experience in the space. The last interesting comment I would say that Jim Elrod had made is really around the board and making sure that the board has like-minded people on it and that there's really enough room on the board for real industry experts. And so I thought this was a really interesting point as you think about developing term sheets for investments in earlier stage companies is, is really putting a lot of focus on The composition of the board and making sure that you have room in there for experts.
0: Jim really is a grizzled veteran. I'm sure he'll love hearing that term when it comes to sort of the ups and downs of investing through the years. And one thing that struck me about his comments was his observation that we're back to an era where he used the term bootstrapping, that, you know, really working together with the companies to really bring them up to the next level in a much more hands-on, active ways. Great observations, Stacey. And then the final theme we focused on was the emergence of value-based care and consumerism. And honestly, Mike, I was a bit surprised at how proactive our investors were in sort of pushing
2: these themes. What's your take on that part of the conversation? Yeah, I think everyone recognized the road to value has been a long and arduous road and will continue to be a a tough road, but that they are pretty committed to continue to push us in that direction, and and candidly, sometimes seemingly needing to pull us there. Healthcare clearly is a a sector with a lot of entrenched interests, and it takes time to break those interests down. We've seen and talked about how the pandemic did that in many respects. Surgeon of New Light made a really interesting comment really around policy. You know, he remarked that, generally speaking, the policy around improving healthcare has been reasonably good and that their job really as investors or the investor community should focus on implementing that policy, I think. You know, as I reflected on that comment, it seems that sometimes we find a lot of ways to try to resist policy change. Obviously, that can be pretty counterproductive to end goals. So I thought that was a really interesting observation by Surgeon. One element that was often forgotten with the value-based care, by definition, includes is the consumer. You know, our interviewees were very focused on end market being the consumer, or at least including the consumer in that. I always like to use the sandbox example of healthcare between three folks playing in that sandbox of financing source, typically a payer, a hospital system, and a physician. There wasn't room for the consumer in there. I think you know they're all recognizing that the consumer needs to be able to play in that sandbox too. You know, we also talked a lot about sort of where value-based care will be implemented and and clearly Medicare broadly, whether Medicare Advantage or DCE, now the ACO REACH program, really has been the subsector where value-based care has been the focus. But we also spent time talking about two other areas where value-based care is moving, specifically populations and specific subpopulations within broad segment thesis. So for example, Medicare subpopulations like a PACE and iSNP and culturally focused MA, social determinants of health, You know those specific subpopulations that are beneath the overall kind of Medicare thesis. And secondly, employers, particularly those self-insured employers that are looking for spot solutions sort of within employer populations. So cardiology, urology, women's health, oncology, kidney care, MSK. There's a myriad of examples. This is something Daisy and I have observed over the past, you know, 12, 18, 24 months. And it's been one of the talking points. So was good to hear the interviewees sort of generally see the same trends that we've been seeing.
0: Great. So, you know, we had the three themes. And so let's step back from that a little bit and just look at the big picture. So we see that, Investors are feeling the heat a little bit. They're moving upstream and searching for value with a little less certainty than they might have had in the past, having to take on a little more risk than they otherwise would, given the competition from generalist investors and the high valuations that are that have emerged and continue to emerge. But at the same time, they seem to be leaning into their strategies. And as you said, Mike, not pulling out of the market, actually, in many respects, doubling down. So as each of you look forward into the industry, do you think these patterns will continue the search for value in harder-to-find places, or at least earlier places, generalist investors continuing to come in and at scale, at big enough scale, to change and, and push up valuations? And obviously, the give and take of the marketplace as it determines fitness, market fitness, and picks winners and losers... How do you see this all playing out over the next one, two, three years? Stacey, why don't you start and then Mike, you can add on to that.
1: Yeah, Steve, it's a great question. I do think that we will see this continue, although I think that there could be some correction coming from the valuation side. But just taking a step back, I mean, we're we're in a, a very interesting time right now. We've been talking on this podcast about what we've been seeing in the healthcare investment market. But then when you think about the broader- backdrop of everything happening in the broader world economy right now with Russia and Ukraine and concerns around China. There's the U.S. midterm election coming up this year. So a lot going on both internationally, domestically, and then within healthcare. We've seen evaluation correction already happen in the public markets and healthcare. Private markets generally follow, usually with a bit of a lag. So it is likely that we'll see some bit of a correction here. I thought it was an interesting comment that Rock Health observed thinking about some of these funded companies as they look towards the later rounds, that they could feel pressure to sustain the growth and and really the revenue goals that were priced into early stage valuations and that the risk of having down rounds as we go out into the next year or two may increase. And this, I think this is interesting because it could lead to more consolidation amongst some of these earlier-stage companies. And we've seen a bit of this happening already in the space. For example, Unite Us over the last year has acquired two earlier-stage companies, NowPow and Carrot Health in the SDOH sector. All that said, though, the broad takeaway that I had from Talking with the investors is that they are moving earlier and that there's certainly a lot of uncertainty in today's market, but that they're really sticking to what they know and remaining disciplined, which can be really, really hard right now in this marketplace. And all of that said, there's still a lot of capital out there. Healthcare is an industry that needs to change, right? The current healthcare spend is unsustainable. So I do think we'll continue to see a lot of activity in the healthcare marketplace over the next
2: couple of years. Yeah, Dave, I totally agree with what Stacy sort of remarked here. I think particularly if you look at companies that had received funding in the past 2 years, you know, it's going to be incumbent on them to continue the growth here and I think you're going to see a refinement of strategies. You're going to see those strategies that are working really sort of bubble to the top because I do think the end markets Whether that's an employer, whether that's directly to a consumer, whether it's a health plan, whether it's a health system, I think they're receptive to change. And I think that's an important catalyst to always remember that they are willing now to change, whereas perhaps in the past it was much harder. As we discussed earlier, they've been allowed to change now because the world was turned upside down on them for a period of time. Yeah, it's really a remarkable time. And as you just look at these
0: valuations, and Mike, you just alluded to it, if you're an entrepreneur and you get a high valuation, that's great on day one, and then you have to start earning it, right? So if we're collectively right that we're in the early stages of a sorting out process of some sort, then there probably are some down rounds in the future of some of these companies, whereas others, the ones that break through, could see spectacular rises in valuations and market share and everything that goes with it. So just feels like there is more variation and potential outcome than maybe we've seen in more recent times, pre-COVID times. So that, of course, gets us to my favorite part of the show where each of you gets to make a big, bad, bold prediction about health care in some form or another over the next three to five years and what's going to happen. So who wants to go first on
2: that? I'm willing to be the guinea pig here, Dave. So I think you're going to continue to see a lot of focus, both in the employer market as well as in the government market, around focusing on specific populations as part of overall solutions. I think becoming really good at, a, I guess it's a little bit of a misnomer to say an end end solution for a very specific problem. I think becoming very good and, and solving holistically, whether that be urology solution, a women's health solution. I think that that is going to be something that is going to be very valuable here in the future. And I think a lot of companies are, are trying to figure that out. And then I mentioned fintech earlier. I just continue to see the parallels between fintech 15, 20 years ago. I think health tech is going to become an everyday word for us as we continue to move forward.
0: Good. Get on board the POP Health Train, Omni channel Solutions, get it all together. So, Stacy, what do you see happening?
1: Yeah, Dave, so I think the last time I was on with you, the bold prediction I gave you was around consumerism,
0: and I do believe that we
1: will start to see more and more companies and solutions out there that put the member and the consumer in the center, similar to how it's done in other industries. And I agree with Mike that, that we'll see further penetration of value-based care in specialty areas. But one other area that I would say will be interesting to watch is really around rural healthcare. I think there's a lot of opportunity in this market, although it's challenging, right, to be truly scalable. However, we're starting to see companies take a go at this market with Main Street Health, for example. But I think the rural healthcare market will be interesting to watch because there is a certain level of distrust, right, around more traditional healthcare organizations in rural markets. Whereas there's actually a lot of trust around retailers, whether it's a dollar store or a retail pharmacy like CVS, you know, there's Amazon out there. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how there's uh, a little bit of a a blurring of the lines between what some of the retailers are doing and coming into healthcare and how that all plays into, particularly the rural healthcare segment, I think is going to be interesting to watch.
0: Yeah, and you didn't mention Walmart, but they're obviously going to be a big player in that arena as well. And I think you could argue almost no sector of American society needs more effective access and orientation and service provision than rural populations. Thank you, Stacy and Mike, for such a terrific discussion. I do encourage our listeners to read our article, Fishing for Returns in Turbulent Waters, Healthcare Investors Adapt to New Competitors and Greater Risk, if you'd like to learn more. And there's a lot to learn. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep doing what you do to make our healthcare system kinder, smarter, and more accessible and affordable for all. Thanks, Dave.
2: Thanks, Dave.